Good morning, sir. Hey, man. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Good. Is this video too or audio only? It's only going to be audio. So okay, might- good. I'm, you know, it's early. I look kind of rough. Hey, man. <laughs> That's fine. Hey, if I didn't have to jet off to the, the W2 right after this, I would be in a, uh, probably still in my pajamas. So. Oh, well, that's where, <laughs> that's where you found me. Very much like, to my pajamas. I like doing the video because uh, it helps me catch, catch <laughs> um, cues, right? Yeah. And then I try to play off of So what I do here, and I didn't send any preempt or anything like that, but on purpose, right? Is to basically, <laughs> it's like you guys sitting down having coffee real yeah. early in the morning, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate you getting up this early. So, uh, cause it's, it's what? 5.30 there, 4.30 there? No, it's, it's 7.30 here. I mean, I mean, I've been up, I've been up for a while, but you know, it does take, it does take a minute to kind of like, you know, yeah, you gotta get, get, your, get your voice or whatever. No, I'm, I'm, I thought for some reason I thought you were in Utah. No, no, no. Look, man, not all Mormons live in Utah, bro. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it wasn't that. It was, uh, it was probably because, um, I guess the way I found you was uh, through Ryan Mickler, Order of Man, and I know oh, that's he, right. Yeah, he was yeah. in order. He was in uh, Utah. He just moved to Maine. Uh, but I was gonna say he moved, gonna, to, he moved to Maine. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. wild. I have to talk to him. That's crazy. Yeah, he uh he bought uh I don't know. He's it, you know, he he and his whole family just took up and and moved out there and he's he's uh I forget the reasoning, but um his beard his beard will serve him well in Maine. He'll it, fit right. It in. will. And I have to uh I got a, a lot of funny looks yesterday at work because um I had a beard. Uh-huh. <laughs> And I went to trim it up yesterday morning. My guard slipped. Uh, and, and, you know, I just got myself right here in the front. And I was like, well, either I go to work looking like I got the mange or we trim it all the way down and it's going to have to grow back. So uh, I've been there. I've been there, man. I've had usually I just keep maybe a little more than you've got right now, but I grew it out for a while. And then, yeah, it's. You get addicted. I mean, it really is addictive. It feels like cutting off a limb kind of when you've grown it for a while. It is. My wife, my wife was uh, extremely happy yesterday, so I'm not too convinced that maybe she had something to do with it. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, when I got to work yesterday, it's like the security guard wouldn't let me in the, in the building. He was like, uh, <laughs> who are you? You know, I got a lot of funny looks. Of course, my boss was thinking that I – my, I was the younger brother of my real, real self, you know, That's right. it was, it was funny. so, uh, all good time. Apparently it does happen a lot. It's the first time it's happened to me, but every guy in yeah. the office, uh, shared some sympathy with me, but they also, uh, made fun of my baby face. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, man, so this is it. This is, this is the format. So if you're good with it, man, we'll dive into it. Yeah. Right. Jump in. Um, <clears throat> uh, so we're talking about your book right? The behavioral investor. Uh-huh. Um, and I got to tell you, this book slapped me in the face. Yeah, good. It was, just, <laughs> it was just one of those things I kept reading and I couldn't get enough. I was like, okay, we're going to do this for the mastermind. And we were finishing up, we finished it up last week. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so there's two chapters that really, and I don't know if you can see this, but there's, we well, can't, I can see myself here, but chapter five, almost every page is turned down. Oh, uh, for conservatism. And I love that you started off by f- quoting fight club. In the, in the first <laughs> one. But one of the things that has just really, um, 
you know, so I've been investing in real estate for uh, what seems like a long time now, but it's not, it's not only for five years. Right. And I know your book is written mainly toward stock investors, mutual funds. Right. But there, there are a lot of things in here that apply to any type of investing. Right. And maybe I misspoke and like, maybe I'm not really setting it up right, but it, it seems like it's not necessarily focused on real estate investors, but because that's my experience, I can totally relate to the content of this book. Right. And, and one of the things at first in chapter five that really <laughs> slapped me in the face is the devil that, you know, is one of the subtitles in there. Right. And it's the number, I'm just going to quote you here, the number of psychological variables at play that account for this tendency to prefer the devil that we know. One reason is that there is some comfort in sameness, right? So I want to dive into that a little bit because one of the things that I talk to a lot in our mastermind group and some mentees that I have is be laser focused, right? Most real estate investors, they find a niche that works for them. They stay laser focused on that and then they just go with it, right? But I'm reading this and I'm thinking maybe that's a fault of our own. I don't know. I mean, let's expand on that devil that you know concept. Yeah. So the, the devil that you know concept, this is one of the, you know, I took this universe of, of investor misbehavior and I'm, I'm glad that people are finding usefulness in it outside of equity investing. Cause I mean, yes, you're right. That's, that's my world. That's the, the piece that interests me the most. Uh, but I've had people contact me say, you know, that they are using this for real estate and then, you know, that they're just using it for life, which makes me yeah. very, very proud. Um, you but, certainly should be. I mean, it's, yeah. Oh, appreciate, appreciate it. Yeah. So, you know, the, the devil that, you know, idea, I mean, there's a couple of things that play into this. The one of them is, you know, our brains account for two to 3% of our body weight but somewhere around 25 to 30% of our caloric expenditure of our metabolic expenditure each day. Yeah. And so our brains are these enormously inefficient organs in our body. And so we're always looking for ways to, you know, candidly to think less. We're yeah. always looking for ways to kind of go into energy saver mode. And one of the ways that we can do this is by being conservative or sort of foreclosing on options. And so, you know, I read a study um, this week that said that basically when people go to the grocery store, they're just an autopilot, like people go to the grocery store and they're just doing what they've always done. And so if you can get someone to buy a brand, you've got a customer for life basically because oh, wow. they're lazy. Like, you know, you don't want to have to, uh, you don't want to have to reinvent the, which peanut butter do I buy wheel every time you go to the grocery store? Cause you've got other stuff to worry about. No. Yeah. 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 Like for me is like, where are all the kids at? You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's interesting though, because I, I think you can't conflate, um, you know, this conservatism or this intellectual laziness with, with having a discipline or a circle of competence or a laser focus, because I think laser focus makes a lot of sense. I'm a big advocate for having a niche. My own career certainly took off when I got more, more laser focused and you know, left behind the idea that I needed to be everything to everyone. Yeah. But, but, but I think where you want to be careful is, is when do you foreclose on other options? You know, when do you say yes to that one thing and no to everything else? And you want to be sure that you don't foreclose on other options too soon 
you want to be sure that you've considered the universe of possibilities before you decide what your laser focus is. And I think sometimes we don't, we don't start with a broad enough, you know, a broad enough view. Uh, but I do right. think you have to work your way towards a, a specialty. I think that's an important principle in, in business. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny you said the growth when the grocery store uh, analogy, I'm sitting here thinking every time I do go on, my, my, my wife does most of the shopping and thank God they start doing this curbside pickup stuff because <laughs> we do have the three kids and I would not want to be in her shoes and try to go in and <laughs> figure out where everything is. But you're right. Every time I walk into the grocery store, I take the same path every time and it's not like I'm looking for a new brand of peanut butter or a new brand of this. It's I go back to the same exact stuff every time. It's that I've never really thought about that. So uh, is that being lazy? Is that basically what you're saying? <laughs> well, again, so I, it's, you know, lazy's, I, you know, I said lazy, but lazy's almost too pejorative. It's too negative a term because my kids, I have three kids and my kids laugh at me every time we go to the grocery store. First of all, I always go to the same grocery store. You know, yeah. there's 10 grocery stores by my house. I always go to the same one. And then I always park in the same really weird, yep. quirky spot. And they're I like, do. this is so <laughs> random. You know, they're like, you passed up 20 closer spots to park in your, you know, your weirdo spot, dad, you know? And the reason is I'm like, kids, <laughs> you know, I got, I'm trying to raise you kids, right? Like I'm trying to be a good husband. I'm trying to run a business. I'm trying to do a startup. Like, look, I don't have time for trying to remember where my parking spot is. And I mean, you know, we may not always be that explicit about acknowledging it, yeah. But each one of us are heavily laden with, you know, with concerns and cognitive load. And yep. so anything we can do to take a shortcut is helpful. And then, you know, what, what I think the lesson here is, though, for investors is take shortcuts where there are low stakes. You mm -hmm. know, um, always parking in the same spot at Target is like no big deal. Right. right? That's not a live or die consideration. Uh, but don't bring that intellectual laziness to places that require intellectual rigor. Save some of that energy for places where you're going to need it. Yeah, no, that's excellent point. And yeah, I have the same quirky, weird parking spot. I park on the side of the building. Nobody else does. <laughs> yeah, funny. me too. The side of the building, man, all day. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's interesting. Now that lazy thinking, does that count toward these 35,000 decisions that we make per day? Yeah. So, you know, we talk about how many decisions we make, make every day and 35,000 a day. I think it was like 12.7 million a year. Yes. Um, and you know, economists are over here saying we make each decision by rationally weighing out the pros and cons and the utility, you know, equally distributed over time. Well, that begins to strain reason when you think about making 12 or 13 million of these decisions a year. So yeah, this is one of the reasons we we rely on what's uh, always uh, always worked, or even what <clears throat> excuse me, even things that haven't worked. You know, I give the example in the book of a slight majority of children of alcoholics go on to marry alcoholics themselves. Yes, and, yeah. and you know, you'd think you'd think that someone who had a front row seat to the you know the the negative fallout from substance abuse would be the most likely to run in the other direction. But, you know, we see time and again that we prefer a known bad to an unknown good or an uncertain outcome. Like people will take a, a known negative outcome 
over an unknown outcome all day. <clears throat> and that's something we really, really need to be aware of as, as people and as investors to say, look, am I just, am I doing this because it's easy? Am I doing this because it's familiar? Am I even settling here just because I know what to expect because nothing is harder for us to bear than uncertainty? And why is that? What is, what's the psychological piece behind that that, that makes us take a, a known outcome versus a, a risky outcome that could improve results, right? Especially when it comes to life decisions, right? I'm not saying investing is not life decisions, but in the book and just now you brought up a great, you know, scenario that does happen a lot of times where people who came from alcoholic abusive homes, they marry into that, right? Why? I mean, you know, you kind of look at that like, how did you not learn your lesson the first go round kind of thing? Does, it, yeah, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Well, it's back, <clears throat> it's back to this familiarity piece because, you know, we are wired um, you know, I wrote about this yesterday in a blog piece. We are not wired to maximize happiness. We're wired to minimize regret. We're mm. not wired to like go reach for the golden ring and be the best we can. We're wired to not die, basically, yeah. you know, to, to not, you know, to not fall apart. Back to and the caveman you, days, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, if you look at it from an evolutionary psychology perspective, like we're really, we're bad decisions historically, like if you think about humankind thousands of years ago, bad decisions, you know, one bad decision could, could take you out of the gene pool. And so we're always trying to make decisions that keep us around. We're not, we're, we're maximizing on the stay around variable and not the be happy, thrive, live a meaningful life variable. And so, yeah, like if you've grown up in a household where substance abuse was present and you've learned to navigate that world, like you can do it again. Like, you know, you can, you can mm. marry someone, you can marry someone like your dad and, you know, live a life like that. You know what to do, you know, you know yeah. when to avoid them when they're, you know, come stumbling home or whatever. Um, that's not going to maximize your happiness, but it's not going to, uh, you know, it, it's not going to be the undoing of you probably. And so we maximize on the, on the wrong variable. And so, you know, thousands of years ago when we got wired, right, um, right. <clears throat> you know, thousands of years ago when we got wired, we really were trying to uh, protect against catastrophe and death and starvation and things. And those things are really not on the table for most people in developed countries, right? Like most right, of that, yeah. you know, we have enough of a safety net that that's gone away or largely. And so now we have to learn to kind of rewire ourselves. Yeah. It's an interesting point. So how do we relate to, you know, as an investor, right? You know, it's easy for me. I didn't grow up in an alcoholic abusive family. You know, I grew up in a great home. Um, so it's easy for me to sit back with a judgment eye and say, okay, we knew your dad, now you're marrying into the same thing, right? But it's also, how do, so how do we translate that to an investor standpoint to, to where an investor looks at an investment decision, he's been there before, he lost money on the deal, and he's like, I'll do it anyway, right? I mean, <laughs> what is that about? I mean, is it the same principle or is it, it, it just seems, I don't know, it just seems like um, some people were glutton for punishment or they don't know of a different way to invest. How do we get past that? 
Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'll, I'll talk a bit about how conservatism plays into investing. You let me know if I'm on the right, right track. So okay. you know, with, with equity investing, and you can maybe translate to, to the world of RE, but um, you know, with equity investing, one of the things that people do is you know, they, they invest in the things that they know. So like if I work right. in the tech industry, I'm going to stay invested in the tech industry or you know, if I live in Atlanta, Georgia, like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to invest in real estate in Atlanta, Georgia, because this is, this is what I know. Well, uh, what ends up happening is you uh, end up sort of stacking risk. So let's say I'm a software engineer from Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm heavily invested in Facebook, you know, Apple, Google, and Atlanta real estate. So well, now, um, you know, my job depends on whether or not, you know, my, my, my job is on the line. My, my hometown is on the line. My industry is on the line. So if I lose my job, you might, I might lose my house and I might, and my investments might crash, you know, if there's a tech crash. So what conservatism does is it keeps us in these places where we're familiar, but we end up sort of stacking risk. And so it's, it's a tricky balance though, because we want to be within our circle of competence. Like we want to know what we're doing, Right. Uh, but then we don't, we don't want to be, you know, sort of double and triple stacking uh, risk where everything is, you know, sitting on the, on the same marker on the, on the game board. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing. We want something that's, um, that we're competent with something that we're familiar with, but not, not have just foreclosed on other options just because we're familiar with it. Yeah. I'm following you. Okay. So one of the, another thing I want to make sure I ask you, and this is all about me today, right? So, yeah, sure. <laughs> is, so we're about, we've been doing this for, we've been investing for five years. I say we, me and my wife, um, I've got some partners as well, but she's, she's the main one that helps keep me straight. And quite frankly, it's, it's annoying that I don't involve her more because I'll grind on an issue for like two or three days. And this is in my W2 or, investing and then I'll just go to her and I say, Hey, I'm struggling with this. What are your thoughts? And instantly she gives me the best answer ever. You know, I'm just like, ah, I hate it when you do that, but it's on me for not coming to going to her sooner. Um, but we are about to sell our first property at a loss. Uh, it's in a part of town that we, we don't want to be in. Um, it, it's a, it's an asset class that we don't, want to be in we bought it because of the cash flow at the time it was our oh man second or third unit that we have now we're up to 49 so you know i'm kind of done with that property if i had more time i'd probably deal deal with it but i don't want to right and this kind of goes against something you put in your book and it talks about good marriages are built on forgiveness and tolerance uh, of imperfection but good investing is based on clear eyed decision-making and buying and selling wholly on merit. So if I go back and look at this deal a few years ago, I probably got emotional about it and said, yeah, I just want to do it. Right. Uh, and now if I think about it in the mindset I'm in today, there's no way in hell I would buy that. Right. <clears throat> but your follow-up sentence here is the, the endowment effect, right? You tend to love the one that you're with. So does this mean I'm growing as an investor or am I making a bad decision <laughs> by selling this property as, at a loss? Well, so, <clears throat> it, it sounds like you overcame the endowment effect. So the, okay. the endowment effect is this, uh, you know, for the listeners, the endowment effect is this tendency to overvalue things that we own. 
And so, you know, this is one of the, one of the reasons why, um, real estate can be tough is because, you know, if, if, if you've lived in a home for 20 years and you raised your kids there and you had Christmas there and you have all these beautiful memories there, that house is worth a lot more to you than it is to a dispassionate third party who's just coming in and wants to rip out all the carpet and, you know, start again. And so people tend to overprice assets that they own and, and that they have sort of positive emotional experiences with. Yep. So what, what I'm talking about and what I'm saying there is a lot of times people don't realize that, that inaction is a decision too. Mm, so if you yeah. buy a property, if you buy a property or you buy a stock and you hold that stock for five years, most people think, oh, well, I made one, you know, I made one decision. I made a decision about when to buy it and I made a decision about you know, perhaps when to sell it. But the reality is you made a decision every single day along that five-year path, you know, all whatever, 15, 1,600 of those days, there was a decision every single day to hold it. And so you have to look at your portfolio and say, would I buy this again today? And mm-hmm. if you wouldn't buy it again today, then it's time to consider selling. And it, and it sounds like that's what you did there, um, you know, overcoming endowment effect. Yeah. And, and we try to, um, since then, since that property, we have done a couple of things to ensure that we don't get emotionally tied to. Uh, for, for whatever reason, I am drawn to craftsman style homes. I love the look of them. I love the feel of them. They were although we didn't grow up in one and, and none of my grandparents grew up in one, they just have that old sense that reminds me of a different time. Right. So emotionally, if I go into one of these things, I'm going to try to make sense of the numbers, right? I'm going to interpret the numbers in, in to something they're not really telling me. Uh, Cause we base all of our investments are now based off strictly numbers, right? Um, I kind of chased a rabbit there, but, the point I wanted to get to is one of the things I've done to help get away from the endowment effect is we don't go look at a property until we have it under contract um, from an investment standpoint. Matter of fact, the house we're living in today, uh, we had it in our contract before we came and looked at it too, but there were some market conditions and things that were, we had lost on a couple of properties that we were trying to get into this school system. But this kind of a different story, but the, a couple of years ago, right after we bought um, these mobile homes that we're about to sell for a loss, we bought a duplex. Um, I made an offer. I thought it was a ridiculous offer. Um, and the guy said, yes. Right. And fast forward three years later, we have now sold that property uh, for a 428% return. We never stepped foot in that property from the time that we were um, made an offer on it until we thought we sold it. And so there was a, no emotional tie there. Right. And, and the reason that we started doing that is because I didn't want to get that emotionally tied to it. Right. We have a, 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 we just bought a fourplex. Um, uh, when was it? Wow. It's August. I can't believe it's August already. It was, it was late last year and we took, so I'm trying to get my kids, you know, involved as we can. So we took them uh, with us to inspect it and look at it and things of that nature. It's a beautiful house, right? It's a beautiful house. It's been divided up into a fourplex. It was built right around 1900. It's almost that craftsman style look. I'm like, the numbers make sense, right? But it is one of those that I'm, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, 
if I need to, I can change this up and this up, sell as a single family home and make a lot of money on it or eventually live in it. Point I'm getting there is how do I make sure, or the question I have for you is how do I make sure that I don't fall back into that endowment effect that properties have on, on me, right. And get emotionally tied to them. Yeah. So you've, you've mentioned a number of really good things here. You know, one is uh, a post-mortem, you know, a post-mortem is when you look at something that went wrong, right? So it's like, Hey, we bought this property. Uh, we sold it for a loss. You know, what, what can we learn from this? Now that's, you know, I'm sure something that you and your wife are doing, and that's an important way to sort of, you know, codify yes. these lessons learned, but there's something that I think is even, even more powerful and it's called a pre-mortem. You know, I talk about pre-mortems in this book, which is, you know, how, uh, if, if something's going to go wrong with this deal, what would it be? So mm -hmm. before I ever make the deal, you know, we imagine failure. Okay. So, you know, five years from now, we are, um, we are sitting at the closing table and we're selling this home for a loss. Why will it have been a loss? And so you try and anticipate problems before they occur and then you see if there's any way to mitigate them or ameliorate them or, you know, see if you can make it better. Um, so yeah, postmortems are powerful. Premortems are powerful. And you know, the other thing that I do is, is actually sort of the, the stock investing analog of what you do. People think this is crazy, but I've, you know, I've created the system that looks at the, basically the value quality and momentum of a stock. So it's like, you know, how cheap is it? How good is it? And you know, how, how quickly is it moving effectively? Right. So I, I buy, um, I buy baskets of equities based on those three criteria, you know, each of which have a number of sort of sub criteria. Um, but I don't look at it. Like I don't yeah. look at the lists. I just buy them. Like yeah. I know, I know the research says that these are three powerful factors that, that have a great deal to do with subsequent equity returns. And when I do peak, when I do peak and go, okay, what did my <laughs> algorithm kick out? Like you get sick to your stomach cause you're like, Oh, like I don't want to, you know, I don't want to buy this. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's, there's great research. There's great research by Joel Greenblatt. Uh, Joel Greenblatt wrote this book uh, about the magic formula, which basically looks at uh, return on invested capital and, and value. And he says these two factors, that's his magic formula. You look at how, how high the ROIC is for a stock and you look at how cheap it is. Mm. Based on those, um, based on those two factors, he would buy baskets of like twenty-five or thirty stocks. In one condition, he would just buy them blind, and then in another condition, he would allow people to screen them out using their own discretion. You know, to look at the, to look <laughs> yeah. at the stocks, and when they screened them out using their own discretion, they actually did worse than just buying and holding the S and P, even mm. though his magic formula had done very well. So, if you have a process. And it's a sound process and it's based on sort of immutable principles of good investing. You have to stick with that process. However, makes sense for you, you know, for you, it's yeah. not, you know, it's not visiting the home before or not getting overly hung up on it being a craftsman home, which I happen to love as well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> not, you know, but not getting emotional about those variables being yeah. um, the greatest quant investor of all time uh, Jim Simon said, you know, we create rules and then we follow them slavishly. 
And that's how he was, you know, that's how he bought a bunch of big yachts. And I think there's, uh, <laughs> I think there's some wisdom there. Yeah. If you're buying a bunch of big yachts, you've, you've, uh, definitely somebody you should, <laughs> we should listen to. Right. Yeah. That uh, guy was pulling like 50% a year returns. He's done something wow. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, you, you talk about, um, looking at your portfolio versus not looking at your portfolio and potential new investments, not potential new investments. How do you, how do you go about, um, not looking, well, let me rephrase this. The, the thing that I get upset about stumbling here. So, and I appreciate your patience, but this is how it normally goes, <laughs> right? We'll, we'll take care of this in, in editing. But one of the things that I, uh, I do struggle with because on, and maybe this is different um, because I don't do a whole lot of stock trading. I mean, I've got my TDMA Ameritrade account or whatever it is. Uh, I've got maybe two or three stocks in my portfolio and that's it, right? Uh, I don't do a whole lot with them. I mean, that account is worth probably less than five grand. Uh, because I don't know the formulas. I don't have the investing criteria. I don't necessarily spend the time to research those stocks um, and play with those. And I think you're playing with some equity funds too, right? So that's a little different. But I do know that the, and it's funny that you have three criteria that you invest with because we also have uh, an adopted uh, tripod of a criteria that we use to invest, um, to uh, analyze our, our buy and hold properties. And when we stick to that criteria, it works, right? Now, I will tell you, the one we're about to sell for a loss, uh, we didn't do that, right? We got caught up in the numbers and they, they didn't work. They were on the edge of this one criteria that they, they didn't necessarily meet. And I thought, okay, well, I can fix that, right? I can, I can make some adjustments. I can fix that. Nope. It, you know, I, I, I'm not, I can't do it. So how, when you're a newbie, right. And you're getting into this, whether it be stocks, I consider myself a newbie stock investor. Right. Um, but how do you know how to conduct a pre, a, a solid pre-mortem analysis? Like you don't know what you don't know. Right. So how do you go through this process of ensuring that, you're not going to lose money on a deal, whether it be for stocks or for uh, real estate and real estate, you know, you can break it down into buy and hold flipping wholesaling. How do you, how do you know that being a newbie investor? So I'll, I'll speak to, you know, two things, you know, basically uh, you know, how, how do you know when you're not a newbie anymore? And you mm -hmm. know, you're maybe in an informed enough position to make a good decision. Great point. But, you know, one of the things that I found, you know, I'm a psychologist by education. Like my PhD is in clinical psychology. And I mean, I went to school to be a, a shrink. And so yeah. <laughs> when, when I got, you know, when I got out of school and got into the world of business, I went, I went straight into, you know, working for a bank basically right out, right out of school. And so when I went from the world of, you know, um, sitting on a couch and talking to people about their breakups to, you know, now the wild world of finance, I didn't know anything. And so I had to, um, I had to start reading and start teaching myself. I knew about the psychology piece, but not the, not the, the finance piece. I knew the, about the behavior and behavioral finance, but not the finance. And so for me, 
an early indication that you're onto something is, um, is when lessons start to repeat themselves. So I went okay. and looked at, you know, best, you know, best books on investing, best books on behavioral finance. And so go look at, you know, go look at five or 10 sites. You're going to see a lot of books that are repeated there. Pick those up on whatever subject it is you like. And then when you start reading, at first, every new concept is going to seem like an illumination, right? Every new thing you read is going to seem brand new. When you see stuff starting to repeat, then you know that you've, you've reached a level of, of attainment, I guess. You've reached a, a level of non-newbiness. Right. <laughs> and so you're, you're maybe starting to get it. So well, let me speak to the other piece, though, is, you know, like how can you not lose money? One of the things that's tricky about investing, whether it be, whether it be real estate or equity investing, is um, there are things that are in your power and there are things that are not in your power. And the way that you succeed as an investor is by controlling the controllables. So it is completely possible. And I mean, look, it's happened to me because I'm, you know, flipping stuff faster than you are, I would imagine, just because uh, it's, yeah. it's more liquid. <laughs> yeah. um, there are times when I have strictly followed my rules and I have lost money, right? I mean, there, there are times when because of a bad turn in the market or, you know, chance or luck, or acts of God or whatever it is, you're going to follow all your rules and you're still going to lose money. Like right. you need to, you need to own that. You need to own that and you need to be prepared for that, whether it's equity investing or real estate investing, that's out of your control. But what you can do is always follow your rules. And if you always follow your rules and they're good rules over time, you're going to win more than you lose. And, you know, I compare it in the book to being, um, you know, the house versus being the drunken gambler, like the house, you know, if you look at games like blackjack, I mean, the house has a very small edge. It's just, you know, it's just a couple percentage points. Um, it's, you know, whatever it's 55, 45, uh, in favor of the house. But if you exploit an edge relentlessly, you know, uh, a blackjack dealer has rules they have to follow, you know, they have to hold here. They have to hit here. They are slavishly following their rules. The person sat across from them is not following rules in many right. cases and is losing as a result. So if, you're, if your rules give you a bit of an edge and you exploit that edge by slavishly following those rules, you're not going to win every hand. You're not going to win every investment, but you will win over time. Yeah. Which goes into the uh, quote from your book. And uh, I love this because it's something I've been trying to press upon uh, some mentees that I have that are, you know, they're one or two deals into their real estate investing career. But the quote is nothing is less safe than playing it safe and nothing guarantees loss like trying to avoid it. Mm. That's, yeah. that's, I mean, that's one of those things I've underlined it. I've put a star by and I've flipped a tab down on the page. Like, and when you come back to this book, cause I will eventually, right. I need to read that again. Because yeah. we, because I get in this, my, so another thing that happened for us personally is that I changed jobs for the first time in 15 years. Um, and, you know, I worked at home for the last 10 years uh, in this office. And, you know, my son, who's now four, has always known me to get up. You know, when he gets up out of bed, I'm here in the office. I see him all day. So there were a lot of changes that were happening uh, for us as a family here recently. And, and this job opportunity came up, uh, where I have to go in the office every day. Uh, but it's going to be better for us as a family. 
right? Financially, a lot of other different things, but mostly financially. So, but it was a risk, right? We wanted to say, okay, we sat down and says, do we want to do this? Or do we just want to continue doing what we're doing? And ultimately the decision was made mainly because of, of, of this quote, right? I don't think I read the book before we made that decision, but it was something, somebody else had said a similar piece to this. So I have to go back to my, and remind myself, Hey, you know, exactly this, nothing is less than playing it safe. Right. And you got to push that envelope just like the, and I don't do that. I haven't been to a, a casino in a long time. Um, but that's why I'm, I suck as a gambler because I'm not willing to push that envelope. You know, I'm going to walk in with my, my hundred dollars or whatever and say, okay, when this is gone, I'm gone, you know, and, uh, I'm usually gone within like 30 minutes. So it's, uh, <laughs> I love that you put that in there. Um, one of the other things, let me ask you this real quick. <clears throat> so the stock market has had a great run, uh, in the last several years, right? Now, the last couple of days have, have been, uh, pretty bad because there's some things that are outside of your control. Like you were mentioned, these are, you know, the couple of things that are going on in Texas and Ohio, uh, with those shootings and whatnot that ultimately have affected the market. Right. But for the last several years, the market has been on a huge upswing. Where do you think is going from here? Yeah. So, um, there's, you know, my last book, the, the book previous to the, the behavioral investor, I, I give sort of 10 commandments, uh, of invest, uh, of investment behavior. Right. And so, uh, I'll, I'll present two of them here to answer this question, uh, that may seem contradictory at first, but, um, but, but, but I don't think they are. So one of the, one of these 10 commandments of investor behavior is that forecasting is for weather people, right? So, um, you know, if you look at the track record of market forecasts, it's just abysmal. And, and they um, are not know, good at it at all. No, <laughs> no. So David Dreeman, you know, David Dreeman, this famous value investor looked at, um, uh, consensus market forecasts. So like when all the analysts agree, uh, you know, how did they do? And he found that one time in 170 were the predictions like close to accurate. Mm. So, you know, it's enormously hard to forecast markets, you know, because, you know, like you, like you said, this, this latest dip in the market's been brought about by actions in China, tweets from Trump and, and shooting, yep. uh, shootings in, in Ohio and Texas and in California. And it's like all of those things are externalities. Like none of those things, I mean, who, who could predict any of those things, right? right. It's very tough. So yeah, on, on the one hand, um, I, I have no idea. Like, I mean, I have no idea where the market's going. But then another chapter, um, in another chapter, I say the truest words in investing are this too shall pass. Mm. So this is... Um, this is an interesting thing in, in human psychology, we tend to have short memories, right? We tend to have these sort of goldfish like memories. And so whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know, what, what we tend to do is we look at the recent past and we say, okay, well, how have things gone for the last little while? And that's probably what the future will look like. We take the recent past and we extrapolate it too far into the future. And so when you ask most investors and, and folks at Natixis and other places have done this, you know, we've gotten whatever it is, I think about 15% a year for the last 10 years. And so when you ask people like, hey, what are we going to get for the next couple of years? They go, oh, you know, whatever, 13, 15, 17% a year, because that's what we've done in the recent past. 
Well, the truth about um, equity markets is they tend to be mean reverting. So long periods of, of high performance tend to be followed by uh, longer periods of, of poor performance. Mm. So if I had to guess, um, you know, so, so the two caveats are this, you know, first of all, I have no idea. Right. <laughs> um, but, but second of all, you know, if I, if I had to guess and just put kind of like a, a broad strokes guess, I would say on the back of a decade of exceptional performance, we're probably looking at a medium term that's less extraordinary. Yeah. That would be, that would be my guess. Not because I know anything in particular, but just because markets tend to be mean reverting. And I think that things just tend to come back down to earth. You know, uh, trees don't, trees don't grow to the sky, right? At right. some, point, at some point things kind of come back to earth. Yeah. And yeah, so my crystal ball is saying the same thing on the real estate investing side. And, and you know, from the circles that I'm involved in, there, there are people who have been predicting a, um, and I'll, I'll use the term loosely crash, right? Um, and, and from a real estate investor side, everybody's looking at what happened in 2008 and 2010. Um, and a lot of people for the last couple of years have been predicting that uh, that's going to happen again. It should have already happened in some people's eyes. Uh, I think may, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen after the presidential uh, reelection. I don't think it would, with Trump in office, he's going to allow that to happen because that's the one thing he really has going for him right now is whether you like him or, or not, he's, he's got the economy booming, you know, so, or it seems that way to most folks. So, um, but yeah, I always curious to get people's feedback on that. One of the things I also wanted to bring up, have you, I'm sure you do a lot of reading in your line of work as well. Have you read the book, uh, atomic habits by, by James clear? No, I've, I, I'm a reader of his blog, but embarrassingly, I have not read the book and I've heard great things about it. So, yeah, so I just picked it up. And, and so we just finished your book in the mastermind group. Uh, we're going to start to this and with his, and it kind of coincides with, I mean, it's a great complement of one another, right? And it's talking about, uh, he, he goes into the same effect of, uh, you know, we tend to default to what we know the best. Mm -hmm. um, because we are lazy as you were pointing out. Um, the thing in his book though, he focuses on changing your default, yeah. right? Removing the bad habits or what's perceived as bad habits. Habits don't, don't provide you the results that you want and replacing them with good. And, and he gets down into talking about these cues that, you know, every morning when I come down, uh, you know, at five o'clock in the morning, the first thing I'm going to do is, go get some coffee, right? It's not that I want coffee. It's that because I'm, I'm sleep deprived, you know, our, all of our kids are under four. Um, you know, it's five o'clock in the morning. First thing I'm doing is I'm getting coffee because that cue of me getting up out of bed that early forces that habit. Now I'm not saying that's a bad habit. I think it's a good habit and I think coffee for being around, <laughs> but he <laughs> focuses on these cues and, and now, so now I'm, I'm paying attention to these, cues and how these 35,000 decisions that, um, that we make a day are affected by that. So I just, I was curious on, um, your take on the book. I, I would highly recommend it for sure. Yeah. I, I have a lot of respect for him and, you know, he's, he's, uh, someone I kind of hold out as an example, as an author, he's someone I kind of hold out as an example of how to do it right because he, mm -hmm. 
he's done an, an excellent job of, of building an audience and getting that book out to the world. And I've, I've heard great things about it. My, um, my nightstand bookshelf is just like the leaning tower of Pisa right now. <laughs> I yeah. Is that one of your things you read before you go to bed? Oh, I read every day, but you know, it's just, there's too many good books. Um, it's a, it's a good are. problem to have. I can't, can't die yet. There's too many, too many good books to read. What's, what's next on your list? So professionally? Yeah. Or to, to read? To read, to read, to read. Sorry. Oh, to read. I'm reading, uh, I'm reading a book right now about why stock markets crash, which is uh, very timely. Um, <laughs> so I try to keep, I try to keep a couple going at any given time. So my, yeah. My, uh, my favorite philosopher is a Danish guy named Soren Kierkegaard. So I'm reading a book of Kierkegaard quotes. I'm reading a book on why stock markets crash. Uh, I just read a book that I would absolutely recommend to everyone called Alchemy uh, by a behavioral scientist named Rory Sutherland, a British guy. He's given some brilliant TED Talks. Like his TED Talks have been watched like 6 million times. But okay. um, if you're interested in sort of uh, applying behavioral science to... Uh, the way you sell and market market things, uh, absolutely a great read. Uh, and then I'm reading Dan Ariely's book. He actually just came out with a graphic novel on decision making. <laughs> so I'm reading, <laughs> I'm reading a graphic novel on decision making. So those are kind of the three or four I'm working on right now. It sounds like it has a lot of pictures, and I can I can process that. You know, it's <laughs> you know it's been a little look, man. I'm from I'm from Alabama. I need um you know I need all the picture books I can get. But you know the um it it's been a little disappointing so far. It's not been as rigorous as I might have hoped. Yeah, so, I don't know. What I was expect, I don't know. What I was expecting from a comic book, but um not. Yeah. <laughs> And so I did not know that. I'm, I apologize for not knowing this. I guess is I took it you being from Utah, um, and and that was it. And I made my mind up about it. Well, so I grew up in Alabama, and I spent all of the last ten years of my life uh, in Gadsden and Birmingham. Where Where yeah. are you from? I'm from Huntsville. I live in okay. um, I live in Atlanta, but I'm, I grew up in I you know grew up my whole. Uh, childhood in Huntsville, Alabama. Okay, all right. So that explains your your Twitter headline about uh, burying me somewhere between Bama and Georgia. That, yeah, right? I said I, Atlanta for now. <laughs> Listen, man, Atlanta for now because of because of the restaurants. I just live here for. Ah, uh, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> I live here for the food in the airport, but then the, no, you still got to bury me in Alabama. So. Yeah, yeah. Atlanta is an hour away from Atlanta. I just I can't. We have to go through. Uh, we have to go through Atlanta. Uh, to see our in my in-laws in South Carolina and, and the best thing that I've ever done for this trip for that trip is to buy the peach pass so we can yeah. get in that lane and just go I mean it was <laughs> money well spent so yeah. uh, uh, I guess that's why you mentioned Coca-Cola in your book too right and the Coke, Coke and Pepsi challenge well, it's interesting. Coke, Coke. Uh, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I I drink Diet Coke every morning, which is I'm certain killing me. But um, <laughs> yeah. it's just shaving years. It's like smoking a cigarette when you wake up. But here I here I am. Uh, yeah. I'm a big Diet Coke fiend, and so I yeah I I'm a big Coke enthusiast. And you know, again, kind of like the Alchemy book, going to the world of Coke. If you know, if you're ever in Atlanta, yeah. going to the world of Coke is like you know, it's a tourist trap, but it's also this great masterclass in marketing. I mean, the, I mean, nobody's done it better than Coke, certainly. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, it's really, 
a business lesson as much it is as it is a tourist trap. Yeah. I, so I went there uh, on a field trip in high school. Um, I would love to go again now with a business mindset because you you know you mentioned the Coke and Pep uh, Coke and Pepsi challenge that was back in the eighties, I think yeah. it was. And, you know, at the time I, re- I remember those commercials, right. And I was like, who's going to win? How can they use each other's brand in the commercial? Well, come to find out, you know, this was, they, uh, from a marketing standpoint, the single best marketing strategy for both companies, because at the time there was all these different sodas coming out and, and things like that. They made the general public think that there was only two choices right? Mm-hmm. Coke or Pepsi. So they grabbed the biggest market share during that Coke and Pepsi challenge when we all thought, Hey, they're battling with each other, right? Who's going to win? We, you know, we forgot about Dr. Thunder and all this other stuff. That <laughs> <coming> out. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? So you of course I do. shopped at Walmart as well, right? <laughs> yeah, I got that. Listen, man, you grow up poor in Alabama, you're going to drink a lot of Dr. Thunder in your day. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Um, uh, there's something. Oh, so you, you mentioned your favorite philosopher. Okay. And I don't have a philosopher that I follow, right. Or anybody that I think, think I've ever read who's somebody I should tap into. What is uh cause I definitely want to, ex- my brain needs expansion, right? So who, yeah. who is something for, for somebody who's not going to get turned off, um, too quickly, uh, from a philosopher standpoint, never really, study that. I mean, I have a computer science background, a master's in, in business administration. I, you know, I think I filmed the psychology one-on-one class that we had, had to take, um, maybe a C minus to get past, to get the credit. But, um, who's a, who's a philosopher I should tap into to. So what's, what's interesting is, um, so, you know, I have a, I'm, I'm on the opposite end of things. Like, I don't think I took a single math class in college. You know, I'll, I, I'll share a few with you. <laughs> yeah. I te- you know, I tested out a math classes and that was very happy to, you know, to be rid of them and then, you know, have a doctorate of philosophy. But you know, the, the thing to me about philosophy, it gets kind of, uh, it gets kind of a joking reputation, right? But if you look at some of the greatest investors of all time, there really are philosophers. You know, you look at people like George Soros, which again, like love, right. love, him, love him or hate him politically, he made a lot of money. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's really sort of a frustrated philosopher. And he talks a lot about he has this whole philosophy of reflexivity. You look at Ray Dalio, um, the famous hedge fund investor. You know, he, he just wrote a book called Principles. And everything he does is based on, you know, these, these principles. And so I think the vet, the best investment paradigms have a very strong uh, philosophical undergirding to them. So that's just sort of my plug for philosophy generally. Yeah, it's, it's not something, it's not something that's outside of the realm of investing. It's something that's very much can and should be integrated into the way that you invest. Yeah. So my favorite philosopher is Kierkegaard. Um, I'm big into the, uh, Soren Kierkegaard. I tried to name my son Soren. My wife was not having it. Um, <laughs> Spell the last name for me. Something about bidding, getting beat up in Georgia. If your name is Soren with an O, you know, with a slash through the O, the last, K I E R K E G A A R D. 
Um, <laughs> the good, I would have loved it if you had named him Soren. If you had good, got good Danish name, good Danish <laughs> name for a kid born in Huntsville. But yeah. um, but yeah, so Soren Kierkegaard's great. Um, I love uh, Jean Paul Sartre. I love uh, Viktor Frankl, who's a psychologist with a with a strong philosophical bent. I like people who write about the meaning of life. Yeah. And so for me, um, I'm always trying to like figure out and refine what my North star is and like why I get out of bed in the morning to drink copious amounts of diet Coke. And so, um, (laughs) people who, people who write about people who write about meaning and making, um, taking struggle and hardship and turning it into meaning. Those are the, the, the people that I like. And so, uh, I would say that Kierkegaard, Frankel and Sartre, uh, all, all fall in that camp. Okay. I'm, I wrote them down. I'm definitely going to look them up. Cause that's one thing that I, you know, I read a lot of books and it's a lot of guys and gals that I want to imitate. Right. Um, uh, for you, for an example, I don't know that I have a New York best selling and a USA today, best selling book in me, but, uh, there's a lot of good stuff in here. Right. Um, uh, so, but to that point, I, there's, I need to expand my horizons and that's one area where I, I mean, I couldn't, if you were to ask me, Hey, name one philosopher, I couldn't do it except for now. Right. Soren, because that's what you want to name your kid. <laughs> <laughs> start, start with man's search for meaning. Frankel's book. Um, Frankel's okay. Book on, I've, on his I've heard of that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's about, he's a psychiatrist, a Jewish psychiatrist from Austria and he was, you know, imprisoned in the concentration camps lost everything and everyone he loved and, you know, lived to live to write about it and to, and to make meaning from that, like mm. most profound of all suffering. So like, yeah. Yeah. man's search for meaning, I feel, feel like is my favorite book of all time. And it has some good philosophy in it as well. And into the list. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you just unbox something that I wish we had time to dive into more. Maybe we can do another show here um, soon, but you talk about finding your North star, right? And, and so the point of the W2 capitalist is for people to discover why they go to work every day. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then our mantra is earn, invest, repeat, because my experience is you're not going to get where you want to go just by having a W2 job. So I think you just unbox that and I wish I had time to dive into it, but I've actually got to get to work and I also want to be respectful of your time. Um, real quick, I've got one, two last questions for you. Um, Alabama or Auburn? Auburn. I knew I loved you for some reason, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Go Tigers. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> which we, I'd probably just lost half my audience there. So, uh, my wife is a Clemson, uh, area. Um, she was growing up with the Tigers. My parents raised me right being an Auburn Tigers fan. So now I just have to say go Tigers. Right? Oh man. I wish, um, I wish my video was on. I mean, I'm glad it's not because, because <laughs> I look terrible, but I'm sitting, I'm sitting here with, with some Coke zero and a big AU, uh, Tervis tumbler with a big, nice war Eagle on the side. There you go. There you go. Uh, uh, you're a traitor. You're a traitor to our home state. No. <laughs> go Tigers, buddy. It's, uh, <laughs> it keeps me in the wheel and it keeps me off the couch. Right. <laughs> and, uh, so, oh, I, I'll split split the. And if you've never been to Clemson, I highly recommend it. You're going to find a lot of similarities between the uh, the class of people there and just the campus in general. It is a beautiful. It's a it's, beautiful place, and it's a beautiful amazing. Campus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, but anyway, so Daniel, I, I've loved talking to you. You've enjoyed it very much. Thank you for getting up so early to chat with me. Um, I actually sometimes forget that we're actually doing a podcast for other people to listen to, but I want to make sure I'm going to make a link to your book, uh, the behavioral investor, which is a New York times and, and USA today, bestselling, uh, book, right. Or is that yeah. your previous, you've got a couple of books out now, right? Well, they've, they've done well. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of good information in here. Who did the, who did the cover? The cover is just badass. Yeah. So shout out to Harriman house, uh, my publisher. Okay. They, so I had the idea. They said, you know, what do you want to do on the cover? And I said, I want to do a Rorschach like ink blot bull. Yeah. And they just delivered. That was their first run. And I just, they, they killed it. I thought, love they did. it. Yeah. It's, that's awesome. Um, so I'll make links to that in the show notes, but I want to make sure people want to, if they uh, want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? So I'm, I'm very active on Twitter at Daniel Crosby. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Daniel Crosby, PhD, or go cop the book. Those are the best ways. Awesome. Daniel, thanks again, man. Hopefully we can do it again soon and uh, enjoy that Diet Coke. All right. We're, yeah. Hey, and we're about to get into football season. So uh, go Tigers. Yeah, go go tigers as well. One one tiger or another, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Thank you.